0: Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real-world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by Coda, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our CODA podcast. My name is Ming-Hee. I am CODA's Senior Medical Director. And today we have with us Dr. Paul Barr. Dr. Barr is an Associate Professor of Medicine. He is the Director of Clinical Trials at the Wilmot Cancer Institute at the University of Rochester Medical Center. So welcome, Paul. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So, Dr. Barr's specialty is in the hematologic blood cancers, especially in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So, we're very happy to have him with us today as it is Blood Cancer Awareness Month. And so, Paul, would you like to just maybe start us off with some general comments about kind of the impact of blood cancers in general and sort of what Blood Cancer Awareness Month means to you? and sort of why we have a month to draw attention to this type of cancers.
1: Sure. Glad to. So blood cancers, I would say these days, seems like a very general term. We divide the blood cancers historically into lymphoma, leukemias, and multiple myeloma. These sort of separations keep getting subdivided further and further the acute leukemias are divided into chronic and acute the lymphomas sometimes we divide into non-hodgkin lymphomas and hodgkin lymphoma and in these subdivisions can also be further divided based on molecular features different risk factors so when you put it all together we the blood cancers kind of make up more than a 100 different diagnoses in the current classification system and the more we learn the more we keep trying to more precisely define these different entities so often you'll hear various blood cancers chronic lymphocytic leukemia is one example referred to as you know somewhat rare diseases but when you lump these together they account for like the third leading cause of death cancer-related death in this country and at any one point time there's about 1.3 million americans living with the ver- the various blood cancers. So it's a significant cause of morbidity and mortality in this country. And because of this, there are efforts, including the one we're sort of thinking about this month, bringing awareness to blood cancers. And I think this is accomplished through many different organizations and means. A couple notable ones to point out leukemia, lymphoma society. They put in a lot of time and effort to drawing awareness to the various blood malignancies, the blood cancers, and have events like light the night that bring a bunch of survivors together to raise awareness. They have philanthropic efforts where it, it had networking efforts as well. Uh, the lymphoma research foundation is another one that's near and dear to my heart. So these are national organizations that put a lot of time and effort into raising awareness. We also have specific efforts at the Wilmot Cancer Institute, where I work in the University of Rochester. couple ones to bring out are the, uh, the Wilmot Warrior Walk. And this, this is an effort that happens every September, just happened last week, where there is a, um, a one mile, a 5K and a 10K run and walk for, it's an effort that brings together all of the caregivers, the physicians, the providers, as well as patients, survivors, administrators, whatnot raises money to fund cancer research. Another one to, that I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up is the discovery ball, which is a more formal event here at the cancer Institute, which in a similar fashion raises funds and draws support for uh, cancer research.
0: I think that's great. At UT Southwestern as well, we definitely have events this month. Um, We have our own sort of like 5K to raise awareness for blood cancer. But I think for our listeners out there, you know, if you're not in a position to join us on one of these walks or maybe join us at the ball, I think something that's very easy for almost anybody to do is to simply donate blood products, right? So usually this month, when I was younger and I had more energy and more time, I would help to organize some blood drives where people can come and donate blood, try to... Educate people about donating slightly more complicated blood products, more involved blood products like platelets and plasma. So these are all things that can be done in multiple places. Generally, there are national organizations like the American Red Cross, but there's always some place close to you where you can go because patients were affected by blood disorders. A lot of these patients will require blood transfusions at some point in time. And For a lot of these patients, in order to survive their treatments, blood transfusions and blood product transfusions is a must. So if you're looking to participate and to contribute and to help patients affected by blood cancers, I think a very simple thing to do, you know, if you're not up for getting up and walking, is to simply go to your local blood bank and donate blood if you're able to. So, from here, um, let's take a turn. Dr. Barno, your special interest is in CLL. I think that this is probably one of the blood cancers that more people have heard of because it is a little bit more common. And so, I would be very much interested to know what drew you to CLL, what perked your interest in this cancer, and sort of. Where do you see this cancer going? You know, there's been a lot of new treatments in recent years, so we'd we'll love to hear your opinion about that and kind of what direction we're headed in CLL.
1: Sure, sure. So CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, is you can categorize it one of a couple different ways. It's the most common leukemia in the in Western countries. Biologically, we think of it more as a subtype of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and if you look at it that way it's the second most common lymphoma that we see it often has a slow natural history so what that means is that patients may live with this disease for a long period of time and there are some estimates that there's about two hundred thousand americans living right now with cll generally it's relatively treatable compared to a lot of other malignancies and again because of this patients can live for a long time. I think what drew me into studying lymphomas and especially CLL is the ability to, um, when I first started my training in the early 2000s, we were just starting to develop some of the the novel tools to treat this disease. And being a clinical trialist at heart, my passion is really developing novel treatments. It was an area where. We're just learning how to use some of these exciting new agents. So that that drew me in one in one way. The ability to take care of patients over a long period of time and get to know them and their families was another draw. And also the ability to perform, I guess one way to put it is to perform biopsies in a very easy way. You can test the cells by just drawing blood or you know, by looking at. And more formally by doing a biopsy and bone marrow biopsy to look at the uh, cells and sort of their micro environment. But it was, um, you know, had a lot to do with timing and, you know, connections with the patients that pulled me in this, in this direction.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. When we, when a lot of people think about leukemia they think tend to think about the acute leukemias. Probably, I think, a lot of awareness is also raised towards the more acute leukemias, probably partially because acute leukemias generally affect children. So chronic lymphocytic leukemia, like you said, is a completely different animal. It's a slow, indolent disease. It's a disease of adults, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember when I trained during my fellowship, I think that is 10 years ago now, the treatment for CLL has really changed since then. So if I didn't, honestly, if I didn't do my CMEs, if I still thought that CLL was treated the way it was 10 years ago, I'd probably get a lot of my test questions on my boards incorrect. So, could you talk maybe a little bit about maybe in the recent five years the developments um, CLL has seen, like sort of like the success stories in regards to the new drugs, and what what is sort of up and coming in regards to the treatment of CLL?
1: Sure, number of developments we over a little more than five years, but we we now have a much better understanding of the molecular drivers of the disease. We can risk stratify patients based on a lot of the, um, the molecular aberrations that occur within leukemia cells, giving us a better I- idea of patient's prognosis and, and also helping us to direct our therapies. That, that's pretty exciting. In regards to the, the therapies that you brought up, a little more than five years ago, we basically had chemotherapy. And some targeted agents like anti-CD20 antibodies, with rituximab being the, the first one that was clinically used now with a better understanding of the survival pathway within the leukemia cell that drives the disease, the B cell receptor signaling pathway, there have been a number of efforts to target enzymes within this pathway and the most successful one has been Bruton's tyrosine kinase with BTK. BTK inhibitors have revolutionized how we treat CLO, and a group that being the first in class here in a number of randomized studies, beat out, so to speak, all the different chemotherapy regimens. So BTK inhibitors were one of the first major changes to how we treat this disease. Understanding the blocks in the cell death pathway allowing these cells to survive for too long led us to investigators to develop venetoclax, a novel drug that targets BCL2. These two classes are approved for routine use and there are further developments to target BTK and novel strategies and BCL2. And even more novel agents coming down the path, targeting more novel mechanisms and and enzymes so it's really turned our treatment paradigms upside down and now we routinely use these novel targeted therapies pretty much avoid chemotherapy in all patients and so we're seeing better outcomes We're, we're seeing improved efficacy longer survival rates and less toxicity for patients so we're really improving their mortality and their morbidity which is obviously great for patients with with CLL.
0: So coming from somebody who now pretty much just treats solid tumors when I am not doing my job as senior medical director at CODA, you know, there is always a lot of talk in the public regarding the CAR T therapies, right? That was... First approved in acute lymphoblastic leukemia and then later on in the more aggressive lymphomas. Do you think that CAR T or similar therapies would ever move to the more indolent diseases like more indolent lymphomas and in CLL?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I think the novel therapies that I just mentioned have completely changed how we treat patients. They're doing much better, but the disease still unfortunately takes people's lives. Patients are doing better, but we still need, obviously, to keep working on this disease. CAR T-cell therapy is one such strategy that's not approved for CLL, but looks very promising. CAR T therapy I describe to patients is, is, sort of like genetically modifying our immune cells to attack the cancer It's our true immunotherapy that's uh, individualized for the patients who go through the process. And again, we use this all the time for, as you mentioned, ALL in some of the more aggressive lymphomas. The challenge with CLL is that the disease causes a certain amount of immune dysfunction. So CLL patients by definition are immunocompromised. Those T cells that we harness to modify and put back in the patient are not as functional as with other diseases. So for this and some other reasons, it hasn't been as successful. In initial trials, only a minority of patients were responding to CAR T cell therapy with CLL. However, re- more recent studies combining CAR T therapy with a BTK inhibitor, namely brutinid, have been more successful. We may be able to, for a period of time collecting those T cells and then reinfusing them, reverse some of the immunosuppression inherent to CLL. So it's looking better and better. And there are other initiatives underway to make this more and more successful. One of the other strategies is when administering an aggressive therapy, so to speak, Uh, when you receive CAR T-cell therapy, you also receive a course of chemotherapy to somewhat suppress the immune system and make these T-cells take hold, grow, survive, and proliferate. Here again, remember that these patients are immunosuppressed so that even though it's transient, suppressing the immune system can lead to infections. So there are a number of complications that can occur with CAR T therapy, but in CLL patients, there is an increased rate of infections that we worry about in the short term, long term. So all of this is to point out that, yeah, I think, I do think it is very promising. I think it will be used predominantly in patients with high-risk, um, more aggressive CLL, not really across the board just yet. For the patients with the highest risk disease, it, it definitely looks very promising. And I think we're at, we're entering phase three trials now using certain CAR-C products that likely could lead to um, approval.
0: Yeah, that is actually very, that's very exciting. I didn't, I've never thought about it, but that's true. The conditioning regimen for the CAR t therapies are very immunosuppressive, and that would be very tough for a CLL population. But yeah, thank you. So since CODA is a real-world data company, I guess the last topic I want to broach with you is real-world data and real-world evidence, I think, is still relatively new in the world of clinical research. And we are still kind of trying to figure out what is the best use for this data or the evidence that can be generated by this data. We're still trying to figure out how is the best way this data can participate, right, in contributing to research and also maybe participate in Helping to improve uniformity and standard more like to help standardize patient care by giving an idea of just general practice patterns. So I know that you are familiar with CODA and you're familiar with real world data. So I'd like to hear, especially as somebody who is a clinical trialist, kind of where do you see is the place for real-world data, real world evidence in you know, in current time? when it comes to research or patient care?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of potential uses. I'll focus first on the uh, novel treatments we develop just because again, that's my, that's sort of where I focus. The gold standard for developing new agents, drugs that we use are, are clinical trials, where we're testing these agents in a very safe and controlled setting using a, a very homogenous group of patients, so to speak. So we closely monitor them to understand the toxicities and the, um, the outcomes, the efficacy. However, you can't test everything in clinical trials. They're expensive, cumbersome, difficult to run. And as I previously mentioned, it's a good problem to have, but CLL patients that live a long time to follow patients within clinical trials for decades would be impossible. So one important use of real world data is to look at patients have, that have been cared for, care for in the real world setting, gather their data across their lifespan, looking at all their sequential treatments to better understand, you know, which sequence of treatments, which combinations might be best for patients, which ones using large groups of patients provide us the best outcomes, you really can't do that in even large clinical trials. So looking, um, you know, across various clinics, regions, subtypes of CLL, you know, using large data sets can be very powerful <laughs> to understand how we should use our treatments, how we should sequence and combine them. So I think that's, you know, one, one of the real powers of real world, real world data. The other sort of area that comes to mind is, as as I mentioned, we, we select patients for clinical trials because of safety and in keeping the patients similar so that when you understand exactly the results you're getting. In the real world, not every patient fits in these neat little categories. So you want to try to understand what your treatments are doing, quote, in the real world uh, where patients may not have perfect organ function, aren't treated at specialized centers and whatnot. So comparing outcomes again, in, in a variety of settings compared to our clinical trials can be very valuable too. Interestingly, what we found with CLL is the outcomes in the real world are pretty close to what we see in the clinical trials. These drugs, uh, these novel agents are user friendly, so to speak for our patients. So you can, you know, to a large part, expect similar results with your patients. Now there's a learning curve of all of these things. And we see that in the community setting too, outside of clinical trials, but you know, this is Comparing this data to our clinical trials can very, be very useful to understand, as you mentioned, the practice patterns and what to expect, what to tell our patients they will gain from these various treatments. Those are a couple uses of real-world data. There are others. I, I honestly think as we learn to better mine very large data sets, there's just a wealth of information that can be gained.
0: I definitely agree. Hence, I I am working here and very excited to be working here. But I have to tell you, when I first joined CODA, right, I kept on sending some of our records back because these patients had records of like 5,000 plus, 7,000 plus days. And I was like, this can't be right. This is almost 20 years. So I was like, are you sure? Did we did we miss the date of death? Are you sure? Can you just check? Every time they check for CLL, it was accurate. I and mean, in a lot of these cases, you know, it was still ongoing. So I would say that our CLL database in CUDA probably has one of the longest, essentially, patient journey, like medium duration of the patient journey across all of our cancers. And essentially, I think CLL was one of the first cancers CODA started abstracting. So it actually helped to develop and drive our data model. And so in addition to capturing, you know, the years and years and years of therapy, I mean, these CLL patients, we actually developed a special field for them called observation. So it's not just periods of blank time, but we can actually record when the patient is on observation, which for these patients, especially those with low-risk disease, can actually be years and years and years, which is great for the patient, right? But it is definitely a chronic disease. Back when I used to treat liquid cancers. One of the more difficult things was to get the patient to understand like, hey, you know, it's it's not going away, right? You're going to be fine. You're going to see your grandkids, but this is not something that's going away you and I are going to have a long-lasting relationship. So like what you referred to earlier on, one of the good things about CLL is like a long relationship with a patient and family. And, you know, I think it takes people a while to realize that, you know, this is not a cure. I used to compare to diabetes frequently just say, this is something you will live with. This is something you had to see me for. This is something that we have to treat, but this is not something that's going away. But it, it would be exciting to think if at some point in the future, we could make it just go away. Do you, do you potentially see that happening?
1: I do. I, I do, actually. We're seeing deeper levels of remission with some of these novel treatments. And as we further develop the immunotherapies to eradicate the minimal disease left behind. I do think, uh, you know, there are patients who have received uh, one of our strongest chemotherapy regimens, FCR, and a a significant portion of them have not relapsed with 15 years follow-up. So I do think certain patients, you can reduce the disease to such a state where you're struggling to know, are they just in a 15 to 20 year emission or is the disease (laughs) again, that's a good problem to have. That's a good, it's a tough question. It's a good question, but no, I do think the cure will come in one, a one size fits all model. I do think it will have to use a variety of tools to address the different types, different risk groups of the disease.
0: Well, thank you so much. That is definitely a high note to end on. Thank you again for talking with us today, Dr. Paul Barr. And hopefully you'll join us for more of our talks in the future.
1: Sounds very good. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.